My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Alright, what up, what up? Dylan, will you come fix this real quick? It's going to catch on this when he pull. But anyways, he's going to fix that. We'll get started. We are in a brand new series called Cultural Quicksand. And as you were watching the video, maybe you were distracted because I was pulling stuff around, but hopefully you were watching the video. There was a verse that flashed throughout there. And maybe you've heard that verse, but it comes from Jesus. And it's from John 17. And in those couple of verses, he talks about how as the believers, his people, they live in the world. That right now, I don't know if this is mind-boggling to you, but we live here on planet Earth. But as he's teaching to those people, he's calling them not to just be in the world, but also not to be of the world. And then we get this weird, confusing teaching of how do we balance living here on Earth, being a part of cultures, being a part of, of the people around us, but yet still living the life of Jesus. And so this series will navigate that. How do we navigate culture in Christ? How do we be a part of the church, yet also having a presence in the world? And to do that, we're going to look at three different topics, the first of which I'm going to hit today, and it's morality. What does culture tell us is morality? And then how does Jesus teach that? The next thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at money, and that's why next week we're talking in all that, and that's one of the reasons we're giving an opportunity to you to be a part of what God is going to do in Detroit through our mission trips, is we want to give generously, and we want to rebuke this lie that we don't have any money. We don't have a lot of money. Like, let's not play. But we have some money. And God has called us with our little to be generous. And so we want to give you an opportunity to partner in that. And then the last thing is we're going to look at how do we function in our minds. And what does Jesus tell us of how we should think? And each and every one of these, the reason we named it cultural quicksand is because oftentimes we can find a balance between culture and church. Like there's some things that aren't bad that culture's doing and we can kind of mix those things and figure out what's right and wrong and come into community and process that. But there's some things like these three topics where if we step too close to culture, if we lose our balance, they are like quicksand and they will suck us in. And so we're talking morality tonight. And to do that, I need a show of hands or maybe yeah, you could show your hands, you could not. It's up to you. But did anybody go to summer camp growing up? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, summer campers. I went to summer camp seven years in a row as a kid. And the reason I know it was seven years is because at the end, they gave me this giant wooden paddle that was like my trophy for going year after year. To be honest, I think my parents paid too much for a wooden paddle. But really, when it came down to it, one of the, I loved camp. Like, I loved getting to go and hang out with friends and do incredible activities. But as I look back on my camp time, there was this weird part of it. Because they called themselves a Christian camp. And I went for seven years, for two weeks each year. And for those 14 weeks, never once did I hear anything about Jesus. Never once did someone engage me in a spiritual conversation as a young person. Not once did someone teach me what it looks like to pray. Did we study the scripture together? Did someone preach a message? Did we join in corporate worship? And so I stand back and I think, what makes them Christian? But then I remember this other little detail, because when I would come into the cafeteria, every, every, during every lunch for those 14 different weeks, I saw a poster like this that was on the, the ceiling. 
Okay, well, this wasn't the poster, but it is my wife's birthday. So happy birthday to my wife. Uh, But you can flip to the next one. I don't know how that got in there. I I don't know. This is what it said up on the, the cafeteria wall. It said up huge, the golden rule. Then it said, do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, if you look closely in the bottom corner, you'll see there's actually a Bible reference. Do you guys know the golden rules from Jesus? Like he is the one that invented the golden rule and then other religions have taken this on and other cultures have accepted this as a mantra. But Jesus said that. However, the funny part of when I would look at that every single week at camp and I would come and I would uh, uh, hear this from the, the counselors and the different people, I started to realize that they didn't actually want me to believe anything about Jesus. That wasn't why this was on the wall. Instead, what they wanted from the golden rule is they wanted me to behave a certain way. And that made it confusing for me looking back. As a Christian camp, they had one verse on the wall. That's the only Christian thing I had. And all they wanted me to do was behave a certain way. And they didn't really care what I believed. And as I continued to prep this week, I found that my camp experience is pretty similar to our cultural experience. That our culture kind of opens it up and says, believe whatever you want. Find your own truth. But as long as you're behaving a certain way. The, The hard part is, though, When we're asking people for behavior modification, especially in the Christian world, being Christians, but we're not interested in sanctification. And sanctification is this fancy word of this pursuit of holiness, that we're interested in living good lives, but not living lives that look like Jesus. And and I can sum this up. Anybody heard of Ellen? Yeah, sweet. Thousands of people watch Ellen's show every single day. And when they turn on the show, they watch it. She's funny. We laugh and she brings on cool guests and different things. And she ends her show and she says two words every time. Be kind. And she's summing up little, pretty much what it means as a culture to set a level of morality. Kindness is what she's striving for everybody in the world, everybody who watches, any influence she has. That's what she's calling them to, kindness. Otherwise, there's a clothing brand. Anybody heard of Cotopaxi? Maybe? No? Anyways, it's a brand that's similar to Patagonia. They make some kind of crazy clothes, but I kind of like it. And this brand, they have a slogan. It says what? Do good. And that's their mantra. That's what they're calling people to, that anybody that buys their brand, they hope that that person just does good. Otherwise, as I scroll on social media or if I Google different things or if I look at t-shirts, I've consistently seen this theme of be a decent person. That that is what we are consistently calling people to as a culture. After I I find that really we're just setting the bar too low. That this is really where we've set the bar as a culture. And I understand that it's okay to set it there for some people because we want everybody to be able to get it. Right? We don't want to call people to something they can't possibly reach. And so kindness, goodness, decency, these morality principles that are down here, we can ask people to do that. Right? That's not too much of an ask. We can go out, we can tell our classmates and our coworkers and our family, just be kind. Just be a good person. If you're just decent throughout your day, you'll hit your, you'll hit your benchmark. You'll be a good person. You'll make it in this world. Now, I'm not even touching any of the morality problems that our culture has when they say this is right, when God has clearly said it was wrong. I'm just talking what they're calling us to. Yet as Christians, as we sit in the room tonight, Do we recognize that maybe Jesus hasn't called us to that? That I'm cool with kindness. I'm good with goodness. I would like to be a decent person. But is that what Christ has called me to? That as I stand up here, and I guarantee you most of you in the room would affiliate as Christians. 
But that term Christian came from Antioch. You can find it in the book of Acts that the people actually use that as a derogatory term to make fun of the people who were following Jesus. That they saw their lives and it looked so much like the life of Jesus that they were so trying to copy the thing that he was doing that they started calling him little Christs. Many Christians. That's the term we hold today. And so for us, every time we're processing morality, money, our mind, we must process it through the filter of Jesus. Is this the bar that Jesus has set? Goodness, kindness, decency. Is that the life he's called us to? We're going to look at it. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to open to Matthew 5. And as we read through what is called the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to study some of Jesus' most famous teachings. And I wish, I so bad, I wish we could do a whole series on these passages of text. But unfortunately, tonight, we're only going to skim the surface. We're just going to see a little bit of what Jesus is teaching here. But as we read it, I think you're going to recognize that this is actually a pretty harsh text. That it's one that can be really difficult to to wrap our minds around and to get get okay with. And it's going to be convicting for a lot of us. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read some scripture. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word tonight. I pray that you would open it up and through your spirit you would speak to us. I pray that in Jesus' name. So starting in Matthew 5, we're going to read from verse 13. Jesus said this, he said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He continues, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put a bowl over it. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus has begun to answer a couple of questions for us. The first one I asked is, can we just be good? Is it okay for us to just be kind? Can we just mix in with what culture is doing and kind of settle in and just look the same and act the same as long as it's good principles? Isn't that okay? And Jesus responds with two metaphors. He says, first, you must be salt. Now, I don't know if we understand all of the, the reasons they use salt, but we get, we get salt. Like Midwestern food is, food is pretty bland, and so we get this stuff. You put it on the food, and what's it do? It gives it a little flavor. And so you can salt your Mc, Mc, uh, McDonald's french fries. You can salt watermelon and cantaloupe. I don't know. People are weird out there. But you can salt your food, and what it does is it brings out the flavor. Otherwise, in ancient times, some of the different purposes they would use for salt is they would actually spread it on their manure, And as they spread it and mixed it in the manure, it would draw out the nutrients so that they would take that fertilizer and spread it over their fields for the best possible crops they could have. Otherwise, they would take salt. And remember, they didn't have refrigerators. And so they had all of this raw meat lying around. And so they would spread salt over their raw meat. And that would be what preserves it so that they could eat it later. And every single one of these three reasons, and, and many more I could give you, is the beauty that salt changes what it interacts with. That salt constantly brings out something different. Otherwise, light is the other metaphor he uses. And so the beauty of light is it casts out darkness. And so when we flick this guy on, we'll see that in a room of darkness, the only light that emerges shines over all of us. That there is this beauty of the text that Jesus has called his followers to a greater purpose than that of the world. 
That salt radically changes what it interacts with. Light casts out darkness. And so when we stand back and we ask the question, can we just be like the world? Can we just be good? Can we just be kind? Can we just be decent? Can we live in the way that the people around us, even some of the best people, is that what we're called to? And Jesus responds, he says, no, you are salt. Salt changes things. You are light. It casts out darkness. Jana, you can flick the lights back on. He's called us to something greater. And in verse 17 through 20, he'll continue to teach the audience that's there what this greater thing is. Verse 17, it says, Do you not think that I have come, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, if anyone sets aside one of the least commandments and teaches others accordingly, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What's going on here? Jesus is expanding on these metaphors of salt and light, and he has tied in these two other ideas of the law and the prophets. That for the law, they in that context would have instantly, their minds would have jumped back to the first five books of our Old Testament. That this is the Torah of what they would have called it. And these first five books contained the 613 laws that God had given them to live life. And so when he says the law, they know exactly what he's talking about. Otherwise, he would have referred to the second thing. He would have said the prophets. And the prophets was the other half of our Old Testament. So the first five books and then the second half is their whole entire Bible. And so Jesus calls upon this scripture when he's reminding them of the greater purpose that they are called to live. And he says the scriptures is what God has given you to live morally. It's how he has called you to live in his design. And he defends that law. He says the law is good. That if anybody removes even the slightest, tiniest little piece of the law, they are guilty and they may be condemned. Jesus actually had to defend himself in this way. That people were accusing him of not following the law to a T. But as he defends himself, he says this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish them, to get rid of them, to remove them. But I've come to fulfill them. And we recognize this moral code, these 613 laws they were called to live. Jesus did them all. He did them perfectly. And then he sh- takes a shot at some of the people in the crowd. I don't know if you caught this. But in verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses, goes above, is greater, is better than that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, then you're not getting into heaven. <laughs> Okay, we're not shocked by that. Let let me roll this back. Jesus has called out the religious elite of his day. That the people who are listening and those who are standing there as the religious elite, everybody would look to them and, and jaws would hit the floor. Because they are the people that all of Israel has looked to to live the law perfectly. There is no one in the entire history or current time of Israel that has ever lived the law better. So they think. And Jesus says, Unless you do better than them, you're not getting into heaven. (laughs) I'll play it for us in a different way. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? LeBron James. Okay, glad we're all on the same page. So LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. Now imagine, Jesus rolls up and he says, you, 
as you sit there in your seat, he says, you, unless you beat LeBron one-on-one, you're not getting into heaven. And you're like, okay, Jesus, the guy's like seven feet tall, 250 pounds, the greatest basketball player of all time. He went to the finals eight times in a row, four-time champion. I'm not going to do all the stats, but he is the greatest. I am not going to beat him one-on-one. And Jesus would be like, well, tough luck. You know, like, that's what he's called them to. He said, unless you're better than the best, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you're not getting into heaven. And as he does that, he recognizes for them that the religious elite, these Pharisees and these teachers, they had actually lowered God's standard. They had lowered the standard of the law so that it only focused on actions and it forgot the heart. And so Jesus is about through through the next six sections, and I'll only read three, don't panic. Through the next six sections, he's about to reinterpret the law through God's holy lens. He'll do it in this way. He'll consistently say, you have heard it said, over and over and over again, you have heard it said, then he'll quote a passage of the Old Testament. One that everyone who was listening at that time would have been familiar with. They would have been like, yeah, I have heard that actually. And then he'll flip the script and he says, but I tell you. And everybody would be like, they would have been confused because the, the Old Testament had been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's what they'd always practiced. But Jesus is now reinterpreting it because of the authority that God has given, given him. And he will begin to call them to something higher. And as he does, he starts with something light. You know, like, why not? If you're going to start to call some people out, why don't we start, start light? Verse 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. <laughs> and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, at least he, he, he went aggressive, but at least most of us in the room can like take a deep breath. Okay, Jesus, I'm good. Like, I, I don't have any intentions to murder anyone. No, there's no bodies in my past. Like, I'm good, I'm good. Deep breath, right? Verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry, okay, with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> murder, anger, not on the same plane. Like, why would we ever equate murder to anger? Right? Like, that's what he's doing here. He's saying if you murder someone, you're going to hell. Like, that's what he, that was the Old Testament, the law. If you murder someone, you're in danger of the fire of hell. Then he says, he says, if you're angry with someone, you're in danger of the fire of hell. That he has leveled the playing field here. This should take a step back and everybody go, what is Jesus talking about? This makes no sense. Unless Jesus isn't concerned about your actions. Maybe when he takes murder and he takes anger and he puts them together, he's looking at something else. Maybe he's looking at our heart. Because murder takes this posture that says, I am more than you. That's the only way an act like that could ever take place. That I have more value, more worth, and more power where I can exert that onto you and take your life. That I have the right to take your life. That is the posture of murder. Now, if we were to roll over to anger, anger says, I'm mad at you. And because of that, I will hold a greater power over you. That I hold this anger over you. I hold this hate. I hold this bitterness. That I could release you from that. 
I could free you from that. I could forgive you for that. But instead, I will hold on to that. And all the time I'm holding on to that, I'm devaluing you as a person. That's what anger's doing. That's a whole nest, another message that I've preached before and I will preach sometime in the future. But anger is, is evil. It's stealing from us. And then Jesus draws in this text in this teaching that he does in Luke 6 where he says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if our heart is corrupted and corroded and, and holding onto this baggage of, of anger, watch what our mouth does. It says words like raka, which translates as worthless or empty. Or it says words like you fool, which could also be translated as idiot. And Jesus is saying, when we use language like that, when we have a heart that is angry and when we murder our consequences are grave. Do you see he's beginning to raise the bar and call us to look inward? The next thing he does, I mean, it's, a, it's another light one, right? Like, let's just keep the, the trend rolling as he's raising the bar here. He talks about adultery. <laughs> All right, we can take a step back. Most of us in the room, probably not going to struggle with this. We're good, right? Let's read it. Verse 27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, adultery, lust, they are not the same thing. Those actions couldn't be farther apart. Like, I am not doing anything in my mind down here. Yeah, I looked. Yeah, I, I looked twice. Yeah, I thought about it. Yeah, I daydreamed. Yeah, I, I, I talked about it. That, but that is not adultery. I didn't act on it. And all of a sudden, the consequences here are being lined up. That Jesus is saying the adulterer and the person who struggles with lust are all of a sudden deserving of the same consequence. But do you know what lust does? Lust in the sexual sense is this deep desire for something that's not yours. Lust is when we look at other people, male or female, don't even get it confused that this is just a male idea. When we look at someone else and we objectify them and say their body, I could use that. Their features, I like that. I wish I had that. We start to sexualize people. We start to objectify them, and by objectifying them, we dehumanize them. And you see where this value is coming back. That for us to take a posture of lust is to say, I value myself and my needs and my desires more than I value you as a human. Jesus says that is as bad as adultery. He's so serious about this idea that the two prescriptions he gives us to fix it. The first one, gouge out your eye. <laughs> he tells you, if you struggle with lust, scoop the eye out. Uh, Jesus, come on, you're so ridiculous, right? He says, okay, if that's not gonna work for you, cut off your arm. This is what he has prescribed to fix the lust problem. Gouging eyes and cutting off limbs. Now he speaks hyperbolically, that this is not a literal teaching of Jesus because we know that as we look at the early church that there wasn't a bunch of one-eyed, one-limbed people walking around. Like that just wasn't the reality. But this is how serious Jesus is when it comes to these things like murder, anger, hate, adultery, and lust. And he raises the bar even further when he talks about divorce and oaths and revenge that over and over and over again, Jesus just keeps raising this bar of morality. He keeps calling us to something higher. And then he puts the cherry on top. Verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. (laughs) I'm sitting back like, okay, I could probably work on my anger and yeah, I can work on lust, but oh, enemies? And I start to ask a question like, okay, who, who fits in that bubble? Like who is the person that I'm actually called to love? Well, funny enough, that's the question they would have asked in this context too. In a different section of Luke, you will see someone actually ask that question. They'll say, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I wish, again, I had the time to open it up and and dive through the text, but I don't. And Jesus responds with this story. Maybe you've heard it. It's called the Good Samaritan. And he tells this story in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And over and over again, you start to get confused as he tells the story because he's not describing the person being served. He's describing the person serving. And when they ask this question, when they think, who is my neighbor? They come in with their own uh, definition. (laughs) Isn't that funny as humans how we do that? Like we ask a question, but really we're already starting to write our own answer in our minds. That when he asked this question, he already had an answer. That the Jewish people, their neighbor was people who worshiped like them, who looked like them, who lived like them, who had status like them, who had power like them, who spoke like them. That was their neighbor. Anyone outside of that bubble, they were allowed to hate. It's weird. I don't get it, but that was what the text, that's how it showed it. Look at how the Israelites interacted with the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans and vice versa. Look at how they interacted with the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. Look at the Old Testament. Anybody that opposes the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel had severe consequences. That I don't think that was God's way, but that's the way it was happening, is they were called to love their neighbor, the people who looked, act, spoke, and worshiped like them, and they could hate anyone else. And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the people they hate. And as he does that, he redefines their definition. Instead of calling them to look outward, he calls them to look inward. Because a neighbor was never about who they are. It was always about who you are. That a neighbor is a posture that we take as people when we go to serve and to love. And so in that, Jesus has blown up their paradigm of what they think loving is. He absolutely throws their bounds of love out the window and he calls them to love their neighbor. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a message on marriage. Towards the end, middle-ish of that message, I talked about how a husband must love their wife. And in that, I described that there were four Greek words for the way love was described throughout the New Testament. Do you remember what word I used to describe the way a husband must love his wife? It was agape. It was this radical, selfless, life-giving, laying down everything that you have to love the other person. That's the kind of love. It was the love God has for us here. God has for all of his children there. That's the kind of love that husbands were supposed to give to their wives. Guess what word Jesus used to describe how we are supposed to love our enemies? Agape, radical, selfless, life-giving love. Now there is a beauty in God's word that we are meant to preach it, to read it, to study it, to hear it, to write it on notebooks, but that is not all we are meant to do. That for us to sit in this place tonight and to hear a teaching and to leave without being changed is the wrong interpretation of God's word. That every single time the word is preached, God is looking to do a work inside of us and to have us leave to changed people. And so right now, we got to put faces to the people that we're starting to wrestle with. <laughs> it's hilarious this Sunday morning he asked this same question. So maybe if this is you, you're really getting it today. But who is your enemy? Who is the person 
that you hate. Maybe you wouldn't use that language, but you just dislike them. They're annoying. They're frustrating. Is it a coworker, a, a friend, family member, a classmate, a professor? Who is it? Do you have a face? Do you have a name? Maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's a group of people. Do you have an association with a group of people that you cannot just you cannot stand these group these people? The way they act, the way they carry themselves, what they believe, how they treat people, I can't stand it. Maybe it's not even a group of people or a person, it's just a type of person. The people who are loud, I can't stand them. People who are quiet, why don't they ever say anything? People who enter rooms and draw all the attention, they're so prideful. People who hide in the back corner, they're so, they're so, uh, they can't even come out of their shell to interact with people. Maybe it's a type of person that you can't stand. The one who's annoying, the one who's needy. Who is your enemy? The text has called us with that face in mind to love, to agape love. Imagine taking a blank check, writing your name on it, and giving it to your enemy. Let's talk dollar signs. Imagine emptying your bank account to love and serve someone. Imagine laying your life down so that they might live. Imagine speaking kind words of of them, even though they might be speaking ugly words of you. Imagine giving your time to serve them so that they may look better, even if it makes you look worse. That is the call of the gospel. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? That he is raising the bar so high on morality that maybe, just maybe, if I'm on my tippy toes, if I jump, maybe we can grab it. That somehow in myself, I might be able to not lust, not be angry, not murder, not commit adultery. That I might be able to be salt and light. I might be able to love my enemy. Maybe if I try hard enough, I can do those things. Jesus asked a couple questions. I think all good preachers ask rhetorical questions. Just, there's a fact. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, remember those who look like you, act like you, speak like you, worship. If you greet only those people, don't pagans even do that? The Jesus is called tax collectors and pagans. The two people the Israelites probably hate the most. He said, doesn't everyone else do that? Doesn't the culture around you love those who love them? Love them? Doesn't the world easily just love those who love them, greet, speak with, interact with, hang out with? Isn't that the way the world functions? And he calls them again and again and again to something higher. Finally, I love the way this chapter finishes because it was common in this time for teachers, when they were finishing up, they would give a summary sentence. They'd be like, this is what I want you to walk away with so that all the thousands who would listen, they would walk away with the same singular idea that he wraps it all up nice in a bow. Well, I'll use the word nice neatly or or lightly because he says in verse 48, this is his summary sentence. He says, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Therefore, be perfect. I cannot help but sit back and laugh because again, I'm struggling to even reach this bar. 
I can't even do the things Jesus has already asked of me. And all of a sudden, he's calling us to a level of perfection that is so far beyond anything we could ever hope to grasp, anything that we could ever hope to reach. Perfection? Are you serious, Jesus? I can't even love my neighbor. I can't even love my enemy. I can't, even st- I can't stop struggling with lust. My n- everybody? You want me to do everything? Perfect? Oh, that's not fair. That's so hard. That level of morality, that's impossible. Why would God ever call us to something we can't achieve on our own? And I think Jesus sits back and he says, I know. I know it's hard. I know you won't reach that. I know you'll never make it. You'll never live up to the standard that I've set. And as I took this truth that hurt in my heart, but I had to wrestle with it, I came back to the text again and again. And I saw the beauty is that Matthew 5, the main point is not a list of behaviors, but rather it's Jesus. That culturally, we might read this list and see all of the things that we must change. But in Christ, we see a person who's done all that. Remember verse 17, that Jesus never came to remove or abolish the law. He only came to fulfill it, to live it perfectly. That Israel as a nation, the Jewish people had tried for over 1,500 years to reach that mark. They had tried and tried. They had lived and and given their whole lives to these 613 laws. They devoted entire lives to living in this way and trying to please God. And time after time and after time, they failed. And that's what Israel struggled with. But our culture, we're setting the bar down here. We're saying if you're just good, if you're just kind, if you're just decent, if you just hold the door open, if you just say thank you, if these are the benchmarks of morality, we have settled for something so much less than what God has called us to. But the beauty of the whole thing is, even though we're called to perfection, we don't need to be perfect because we can know the one who is. I'm gonna say something that's gonna ruffle your feathers, some of you, some of you won't care. Can I tell you, Jesus is not worried about your behavior? I'm gonna get an email off of that, good, okay. Jesus is not worried about your behavior. That what you did last night, it doesn't concern him. What you did this last week, he's not worried about that, he's not anxious about that. What you did today, the sins you committed today, they don't phase him. And the reason Jesus is not worried about your behavior is because he's concerned with your heart. And he knows this truth that I think I have learned through the scripture and I feel like we feel it too. That if Jesus can capture our hearts, our behaviors will follow. That if we learn how to love him, draw near to him, worship him, the acts in which he has asked us to do will distinctly follow. But all too often, we're running the race backwards. Don't you see how culture has called us to goodness, kindness, decency? 
that even in the Christian circles, we're just all about trying to serve enough and be in at enough groups and come to enough worship nights and come to Oasis and come to Sunday morning. And we're all trying to run this race backwards because if we think if we're good enough, if we show up enough, if we worship enough, if we read enough, if we pray enough, if we do enough actions, then I'll finally please God. But God has called you to run the race the other way, that he has offered you his perfection in Jesus. And he is saying, You are good and kind and decent and perfect, not because you earned it, but because I gave it to you. Ephesians 2, Paul sums it up so good. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. When we live like culture, we're dead in our sin. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. The gospel message is not, can I be good or kind? The gospel message, the story of Jesus, the life we've been called to, is that at one time we were dead. We were unholy. We were imperfect. We were stuck in our sin. But God did not leave us that way. That Jesus has offered us his perfection. That he has made us alive. He has given us his holiness. That is the message of the cross. And so to walk away from a teaching on morality to think, I just need to try harder. I got to do more things. I just really got to give it my all. Man, we have, we have heard the wrong teaching. But the Christian message is radically different than any text, any religion, any cultural idea. That every religion of the world teaches you to try to strive for that. That if you just do a good, good enough act, if you live a good enough life, if you say enough prayers, if you show up enough times, if you do the things, check the boxes, maybe you'll get there. I'm looking at that and I'm never going to get there. I'm not. But the Christian message is life with Christ, by his grace, by his sacrifice, by the cross, empowered by the spirit. And so the takeaways for tonight are simple. It's not a list of things you must do this week It's simply come to Jesus. Learn to love him. Let him change your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and bring you to life again. Jesus has raised the bar so high we will never reach it. That yes, all the behaviors in Matthew 5 and the goodness and kindness, those are good behaviors to embody, but we need to do it through a heart that loves the Lord. That we are called to those things, but through Christ alone. I'm going to end on a, on a pet peeve of mine. For the longest time, as long as I've been a Christian, one of the world's most famous verses was John 3.16. And, and shout out Tim Tebow, and maybe he was a part of it, but it was. Like it was the, the world seemed to know that most non-Christians had at least heard John 3.16 in some form or another. Well, at least here in America. Sorry, not in the Middle East and some other places like that. But most people here in America had heard some version of that. And I loved that because it was the gospel. That John 3.16 is for, for, for God so loved the world. That he so loved us that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel message. I loved that even if people saw it on tattoos or on, or on pictures or on Instagram or on whatever. I loved that that was the gospel message. The hard part became, in the last couple of years, I've seen that be usurped by a different verse. And that verse is Philippians 4.13. And while I love all of Scripture, 
that I believe it is God-breathed, and that verse is incredible. I hate the way that we use it as a culture. Because I see tattoos and pictures and posts and t-shirts and on and on and on of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. I can do all things? That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. That is some other heretical message of some other religion. The message of Christianity is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That we must take the whole verse, that we must take the gospel message, that we must take everything he has called us to and strive for perfection, not on our own merit, but because he's already done it. And that message is good. And Matthew 5 is a hard teaching. But what he has called us to in his grace is beautiful. And so let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to worship you. For us to learn from your word, for us to walk with you. And I pray in these moments as we take a step into a communion moment that you would open our hearts to continue to receive from you. We thank you that you are our perfection, that you are our morality, and we just get to step in and follow you. That that call is not to stay the same, but to continuously be changed into your image. And because of that, God, we will continue to build your kingdom here and everywhere we go. So we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.